Welcome to Warpod, a podcast brought to you by Safer World, asking international experts about the risks of contemporary conflict and how to address them. In this episode, we explore new perspectives in what works when trying to stabilise countries troubled by protracted violence, crime and terrorism. I'm Jessica Summers, Head of Communications at Safer World. And I'm Delina Gojo, Associate Fellow at Egmont and PhD candidate at Scuola Normale Superiore in Florence. So to explore what works in these settings, we're joined by three renowned experts. Andrei Gomez Suarez is Senior Research Fellow in the Center for Religion, Reconciliation and Peace. He is a Colombian writer, international relations scholar and peace practitioner, currently living in Oxford. Rachel Kleinfeld is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the author of the excellent book, A Savage Order. And welcoming back to the show, we have Larry Atri, Safer World's former head of policy and now an independent researcher on peace and conflict issues. Starting with you, Rachel, for those that haven't read your excellent book, A Savage Order, could you briefly describe what the book's about? Oh, absolutely. And so pleased to be here with you. A Savage Order was looking at democracies that were extremely violent and looking at why that was and how they could get better. Um, most of the worst violence in the world right now happens within countries, and it happens within countries that are not at war, um, who are facing a, a vast degree of homicide, of state violence, of citizen-on-citizen -citizen violence, organized criminal violence, and so on. And so I wanted to investigate that and how it got better. What I found was that in the democracies where this happened, places like uh, Brazil, South Africa, the United States um, at different time periods, uh, and Sicily, the various countries that I looked at in the book, you saw a governing order that was enabling and allowing the violence. The violence wasn't just a result of the criminal groups and so on that were proliferating. It had much deeper roots in the political system. What you tended to see were highly unequal and highly polarized democracies in which a, a ruling class was really ruling on behalf of a smaller group of people. And in order to keep the perks and privileges for that small group of people, often very low tax rates and other things that perpetuated inequality, they uh, perpetuated a governing order in which policing was highly unequal. It was um, provided to the elites, tourists, business groups, but um, very little policing and often quite brutal policing. So too little and too too much sort of over and under policing to um, minority groups and poor groups and um, a policing that enabled often quite a bit of corruption and sometimes even violence from the elites to enable their business to, to move forward. So if you think about Brazil and the rainforest money that's being made by um, reducing the rainforest and some of the environmental activists who are getting killed or union activists who are getting killed in Colombia and so on. That sort of elite allowed violence um, to happen. And to, to get that, police have to turn a blind eye. And so the first step is this elite that rules for a very unequal group. The second step is a policing system that is policing for a small group of people properly and for the rest of the people quite violently or not enough, both. And um, turning a blind eye to corruption or violence by business groups and elites. What that does is it causes the people who are being over and under police to not trust the police, no big surprise. And they look for other ways to protect themselves from each other and from the state. And to do that, they often end up 
having terrorist groups, organized criminal groups, gangs, neighborhood watch groups, various vigilantes coming in and offering their services for security, sometimes in a coercive manner, sometimes in a uh, less coercive manner. Often they provide goods, they provide services that the state's refusing to provide because the state is run in such an unequal manner. And so there's there's a little bit of carrot and stick from these um, organized criminal groups, but you see drug gangs and so on saying, look, we'll protect you for a price and it might not be the kind of protection you want, but at least you know what our deal is, whereas the state is quite capricious. And so these groups get a foothold in these um, in these poorly treated parts of the country. And then the last part of what I call privilege violence is that you see just enormous levels of violence from regular people. Um, there's a normalization of violence. There's a lack of proper policing from the state. There's a trauma from generation to generation. And so you see a lot of domestic violence, of um, murder between business rivals, all, all sorts of things that lead to this very elevated level. And so the book is about that pattern of violence and then how you get out of it. And I'll, I'll leave that for a later point, but I'll just say you get out of it by social movements pulling together to say enough, changing their politics, uh, electing new people who um, both care about the violence and focus on violence and try to bring it down and who, um, and who do more to make the state more inclusive and less unequal. Those individuals often become corrupted and um, overly autocratic themselves and have to be kicked out and um, a new generation of leaders have to be brought in. But when you see that pattern, and I documented in the United States and Colombia and Sicily and various countries, um, what you see is enormous reductions in, in that pattern of privileged violence and many more people living out their lives happily. Thank you very much, Rachel. And um, I'm, I'm very glad we had the chance to also interview you. Um, it was last year about the book um, because um, both Abigail, who is also normally on this show, um, and I had read it a few years back and we were just, yeah, we, we found it thrilling. So I want to move on to you now, Larry. And I was wondering how what Rachel is talking about resonates with what you found in your new report, which is called No Shortcuts to Security. Well, thanks, uh, Delina and Jess, and um, it's great to be back on the show. So we tried to synthesize that body of research in the new No Shortcuts to Security report. And that report is sort of looking at patterns in conflicts involving prescribed groups especially at places that have been key war on terror battlegrounds, so groups on the Al-Qaeda, ISIS family tree and the conflicts that they're part of. One thing is how Rachel talks about decivilization, which is sort of when insecurity grows pervasive as societies fragment into groups that help people get through the violence. And this really chimes with what we found in many places, that a predatory security environment is one of four key issues that's driving these types of conflicts. Um, but we also highlighted three other key drivers of conflict in these settings, corruption um, at, at kleptocratic kind of levels, injustice and no paths or avenues for redress, and exclusion, whether from politics, services, opportunities. Another thing Rachel says in her book is that violent groups don't have to be morally pure or even halfway palatable to gain a following. They simply have to be better than the alternative. And a problem we found is, is that often 
violent prescribed groups, they get dismissed, right, as just fanatics or terrorists. But they often survive a long time. And that's typically because they actually show a knack for conflict analysis and adopt quite a smart approach. So they challenge corruption. They provide protection from abuse and predation other than their own. They dispense their version of rough justice through courts and, and, and other means. And they also provide relief services and opportunities where it's scarce. Um, they also provide relief services and opportunities where, where they're scarce. In addition, these groups also use violence strategically to escalate conflict, to provoke overreactions, to polarise society, to enforce their writ and undermine their enemies. And then, as well as looking at these groups and the settings they're in, we looked at how states are responding to these dynamics. And it, again, in, in line with Rachel's observations about states' complicity in creating environments of pervasive violence, at national and regional level, we show how states were doing four things. So firstly, fueling both conflict and the rise of prescribed groups with their abuse, corruption and exclusion. Secondly, overreacting pretty much every single time to prescribed groups prov provocations, so playing into their attentions, uh, playing into their intentions. Thirdly, often nurturing or inflating the terror threat in order to acquire the benefits that come with fighting it. And then using those benefits attained from participating in the war on terror for other ends. Then the third thing we look at is how international players' interventions to counter terrorism in these settings have gone. And we found that they haven't analysed these patterns very well. So they've often done things that add to the dangers for civilians, that reinforce state abuse, corruption and exclusion, and that fail to open up space for change and to support societies to push for change. And so we break down these kind of problems and challenges in the report. But there's, there's definitely a lot in this that resonates with what Rachel argues, particularly about how rebel groups thrive in these environments where you have elite complicity and abuses, and how you can't successfully help if you just try and make a weak state stronger. In particular, Rachel pinpoints how security assistance programs fail unless an abusive state really wants to change. And this is something we've documented again and again and again in country after country. So what we did was step back and look at these elements together. And what you see when you do that is that this is a self-reinforcing system. Conflicts emerge due to systemic problems. Prescribed groups provide a more credible answer than many governments care to do. And then international players make a bad situation worse. And this is, explains why these conflicts have gone on so long, why you have the resilience of the prescribed groups in these, in these settings and also the international strategic failure that we see as well. Thank you so much, Larry. So just staying with you quickly, you know, you've gone on to talk about some of the problems that have made these kind of wars so intractable. But if we turn now to really what the heart of this episode is about, and that's what can actually solve these kind of, you know, hard, difficult problems, can you maybe talk briefly about what you found in your second study, um, called How Guns Fall Silent? Yes, yeah, so the second study, How Guns Fall Silent, um, which was written with Abby Watson, who normally hosts the show, 
explores examples of relative success. So cases where violence has been brought down from a high level in contexts involving these violent criminal or prescribed groups, where there's been some progress towards transforming protracted conflict into peace and addressing conflict drivers. And we set out to explore similarities and differences um, in three cases. So Colombia from 2010 to 2016, in which a 52-year armed conflict came to an end. Northern Ireland from 1981 through 1998, a period which witnessed the end of a protracted era of violence known as the Troubles. And then Iraq from 2006 through 2008, where the vicious civil war which followed from the 2003 invasion and the approach that was taken after it was transformed. So violence in Iraq fell in this period by over 90%. And interestingly, these are all examples of what you could call sort of integrated stabilisation processes. So a big focus on the political, social and economic dimensions of crises and military security efforts, not necessarily in the driving seat, but more playing a support role in a bigger strategy. So um, we pulled out these kind of five success factors from our three case studies. The first one is revisiting assumptions and renewing strategy with a focus on getting to peace. So in each case, there was this political, analytical and strategic shift as you get the fatigue with violence, political pressure to achieve solutions, the arrival or election of leaders with new ideas, which helped to frame new approaches. So say in Colombia, there was a shift away from all out war against terrorists. In Northern Ireland, the election of hungry striker Bobby Sands was a key point sort of enabling this changing recognition that republicanism wasn't, wasn't just uh, uh, an illegitimate cause, but a political movement with a strong social base. Um, in Iraq, the international coalition there really went back to basics, revisiting its fundamental assumptions and shifting its strategy almost wholesale from combating insurgents towards a strategy for achieving pe people security, local and national reconciliation and addressing wider conflict drivers. So that's the first factor. The second one is adopting people-oriented and confidence-building security approaches. Um, and that meant moving away from indiscriminate abuses towards a focus on providing security for people and using that to build trust and keep the political pursuit of peace on track. So in Iraq, you have this change in security approach from in destroying insurgents and getting out of the country towards providing security within neighbourhoods, hand in hand with local forces and people. Similarly, in Northern Ireland, the Good Friday Agreement heralds this far-reaching police reform towards a much more community-oriented service. Then the third success factor was around pursuing dialogue, deal-making and reconciliation across lines of enmity and even, yes, with those previously seen as terrorists. So in Northern Ireland, many players helped move Republicans and eventually loyalists towards a settlement for sharing power and working together that had been unthinkable. In Colombia, President Santos opened the way towards peace in part by stopping using the terrorist label to describe the FARC. In Iraq, there's really a remarkable political drive in this period to do lots of different things. But I think in particular, it's interesting how the, the US forces reconciled with many groups in the insurgency and in the support base for Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was a vicious um, uh, 
proscribed group um, attacking very indiscriminately at the time. So each of our cases featured these efforts to bridge between hitherto distant or opposing groups and construct platforms of progress. The fourth success factor was addressing wider conflict drivers and making people a better offer. So in our cases, where the public and aggrieved groups could see progress being made towards meeting their concerns, it really helped bring efforts to end the violence along. In Northern Ireland, Lodes was invested in tackling socioeconomic disparities and helping to bolster community relations by doing it. In Iraq, there were these huge investments in restoring power, essential services, tackling arbitrary detention, supporting offender rehabilitation. All these things that had precipitated the fall into civil war were looked at again. It wasn't perfect across all our cases, but where wider conflict drivers were in focus, it really helped make a difference. And the fifth factor was around supporting and enabling society to nourish peace efforts through bargaining and accountability. Here, Iraq wasn't really the best exemplar on that, and there were missed opportunities. But in Colombia, you have victims groups playing an important role in convincing the FARC to reflect on and move beyond its, its legacy of violence. And in Northern Ireland, say, the, the Women's Coalition really helped to broker peace, but also ensure the new legislature would keep consulting a civic forum with civil society representatives going forward. So if you get a deal to end violence, as Rachel says, again, civil society can really help make this better and keep pushing for justice in a way that helps sustain peace down the road. One final point is that I think all our contexts show imperfect progress that was vulnerable and reversible. And for us, it really underlines the importance of kind of making effort, every effort to, as we say, indemnify emerging peace efforts against breakdown and, and try and keep a strong consensus around the peace process um, through constructing multilateral, multinational stewardship over peace settlements and yeah, helping also set up processes maybe that depend as little as possible on external inputs. I want to bring in Andre. Andre, do you feel that some of the points that uh, that Larry just presented chime with what you saw during the Colombia peace process? Yeah, thank you. It's brilliant to be here, and thank you so much for the invitation. And great to hear from Larry and from Rachel. And I was in particular paying attention that both of them have been doing research on Colombia, which is uh, shows the importance of this case nowadays for the world. I agree with the findings of, of the second research that uh, Rari was presenting. I think some of those things can be identified in Colombia. But I, I think, at, at least in the case of, of Colombia, I think in terms of the first uh, finding, uh, the importance of revisiting assumptions, I think that's fundamental, but because that's what happened when President Juan Manuel Santos got to power after being Minister of Defense of former President Uribe. And he really changed the way of thinking the armed conflict and uh, opened an opportunity for peace negotiations with the FARC. Now, the main problem, however, was that, uh, and I think that had really negative impacts in the, in the long run, was that uh, it took him two and a half years, or probably even longer than that, I think even I think three or four years to drop the idea of 
terrorist to the FARC. Um, he kept using the concept despite the negotiations with the FARC going on in Cuba. And I think that created confusion in civil society. Only when he was um, running for the re-election in 2014, he stopped using um, the term terrorists. And I think this is because also he decided to negotiate in the middle of the armed conflict. So the confrontation between the FARC and the government was ongoing and uh, the, the FARC were attacking the government and the government was attacking the FARC. And so they were still following a militaristic logic. Uh, and in the middle of that, there were these peace negotiations in Havana. So I think that's something that shows the messiness of, of, of these situations. The other thing that I think um, was important in Colombia, and this is like the five finding that Larry was mentioning, was the important role in allowing civil society to support uh, the peace process. Um, I think this was a really important aspect of uh, the peace process in Colombia. Uh, for example, the parties decided to do regional forums or national forums to get uh, to collect proposals from civil society organizations to be taken to the negotiation table in Havana. I think that was really important, and in particular when both parties also decided to bring victim delegations to the negotiation table in Havana and to listen to 60 of them. I think that that was a really important uh, decision in order to try to, um, to, to show that uh, civil society was a key actor in the peace process. Now, perhaps one of the challenges that uh, the Santos administration faced was that when the peace referendum was done, to try to get the approval from civil society, um, the Colombian government couldn't really transfer uh, enough resources to civil society organizations to do a campaign in favor of the peace agreement. And that was uh, something that was limited thanks to the decisions of the Colombian Constitutional Court that thought that the Colombian government could not really transfer these monies to civil society organizations. And I think that created a really complex scenario because um, without funding, it is very difficult for civil society to play a role. So there were other political parties who had enough money to campaign against the peace process or the, against the peace agreement who actually managed to have a much more successful campaign and actually ended up in the rejection of the peace agreement in the peace referendum. And I think what that shows is that as Larry was saying, uh, all of these processes, and in particular in the case of Colombia, show really imperfect progress because after 2016, um, the violence against social leaders in Colombia started to increase and those groups who were against the peace agreement became quite powerful. And today in Colombia, there are five uh, different armed conflicts going on in different regions, even though the FARC doesn't exist anymore. And the other groups who are still in Colombia, they are actually resorting to drug trafficking money, still continue to have uh, alliances with uh, members of the Colombian army in different parts of the country. And, uh, and, and this um, shows that how imperfect this, this progress in order to, to, to stop criminal violence is. 
Thank you so much, Andre. That's so interesting. And, you know, you've briefly started to talk about this, but do you feel Colombia has moved on or is it still vulnerable? And what is it that needs attention and, and how do you think that that should be supported? I think one of the main problems uh, when we think about these processes is that, and I think it's been mentioned both by Rachel and by Larry, but I would like to put it very clear, is that these are political processes. And to put it in the case of Colombia, peace is not a technical uh, exercise. Peace is deeply political. And for that reason, as Larry, I think, mentioned, and also Rachel, you need the political willingness of the government to uh, bring about really important transformations in order to dismantle criminal groups and to bring about structural transformations in the poorest sector of, the, of societies in order to avoid um, new people having to find an opportunity in crime to find their living. So I think in the case of Colombia, the biggest obstacle was that in 2018, a new president got to power who was deeply skeptical of the peace agreement with the FARC, who continued seeing the FARC as a terrorist organization and who uh, instead of uh, implementing the measures that were created in the peace agreement in regards to security guarantees for the FARC and for civil society started to dismantle slowly some of the institutions. So for instance, the peace agreement had a really important national commission for security guarantees that was on the head of the Colombian president. Well, since he got to power, he has stopped uh, gathering this National Commission for Security Guarantees. And for that reason, um, the, the idea of creating a people-centered security approach that was conceived in the peace agreement was slowly to start uh, being dismantled. And that created deep skepticism between sectors of civil society and the state because they didn't see the important transformation that needed to take place in order to create trust between the state, the military, and, the, and, 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 and people in some of the regions. And so a milista, militaristic approach to security by the current administration in Colombia has really contributed to isolate people in some of the regions and has create, created the perfect windows of opportunity for criminal actors to strengthen in these regions. And for that reason today, Colombia is in a really difficult moment. The peace process or the peace agreement has been implemented for the last five years in a really fragmented way. And for many people, after the killing of more than 1,200 social leaders and 320 former combatants of the FARC, the idea of peace seems very far, far away. And now is, of course, at the center of the uh, elections in Colombia that are happening in this particular moment where the debate has been whether there needs to be a change of focus and a change of uh, administration in order to have a government that is deeply committed to bring about these, these reforms in terms of the security sector, in terms of providing a people-centered security approach, but also 
willing to do a broader structural reforms, as Larry was saying, that tackles the other drivers of the conflict in Colombia. Thank you very much, André. And uh, thank you especially for, for talking in such detail also about this idea of willingness of governments, which I think is key to achieving any positive change. I want to give Rachel the final word. And I was wondering, Rachel, whether you have thoughts on what Larry found to be important in Iraq, Northern Ireland and Colombia, um, but also whether you have anything to add on Andre's analysis on Colombia, both in the past and in the present. Um, how do their points chime with, with your thinking on how countries can leave violence behind? Of course. Well, first of all, I think that uh, Larry's points in his papers uh, with Abigail are very worth reading. I think they do a very good job of laying out the main factors um, that we can learn from to make these these conflicts improve. And Andres, of course, knows Colombia cold, and it's a unfortunate conflict that I, I found at an up point and has since gone into a, a downswing. And there are reasons for that that happen in a number of the cases that Larry also tracks as well. And so I'd like to speak to some of that. I think that um, the first point that I wish the international community could uh, move past is Larry's first point. We need to revisit assumptions. Uh, Andres also brought up how important it was in Colombia to revisit assumptions and start rethinking of these uh, organized criminal and terrorist groups as groups that have social support and have to be dealt with in a political way. At some point, governments and international actors should stop having to revisit assumptions. They should just begin with this assumption. If there are organized criminal and terrorist groups in a society, they have found a market niche. They might not be desired by their societies, but there's some market need that they are serving. And because of that, they're going to have a social base. They are competing with the state. If we could just start there, we could reduce the need for that learning curve that um, both both Larry and Andres talk about and that we've, we've now learned, or we should have learned. Second, we need to have learned that you can't just crush these groups. They're uh, they might seem to be noxious, horrific, and small, but as Colombia learned when it went in in 1964 with the support of the U.S. military to crush what was then a very small terrorist movement, they they reduced the various terrorists to about two or three hundred people in the middle of a jungle. They thought that was enough. Well, they grew up back to over 10,000 people, and the war continued for 40 more years. These groups, because they're finding a market niche, because they um, do have a social base that they're drawing on, because they're also working with propaganda in order to affect how people view their actions, and the state um, is perhaps not working very well to affect how people are viewing its actions, um, they will grow back. They cannot be crushed purely militarily. Military can play a role. And I think all of Larry's cases, if you read the the um, reports, talk about the role the military plays, but it's not going to be the end-all, be-all role. There is a political role here that needs to be played, as Andres points out. Another thing that both of them mentioned, that uh, just a thread I want to draw on, is this ongoing role of civil society, not just to start the process or get a peace process going, but really to hold the government to account afterward, to keep the process on track, to keep both sides or multiple sides, depending on how many actors there are, um, on track and their feet to the fire. The, there's a big problem, I think, with um, donor groups that tend to cut money for civil society after a peace process. So peace is done, let's move on, or they throw money at the government to implement the peace. 
and they forget that there will be a backlash and one needs to just plan for that backlash because it happens every time. You're dealing with a polarized set of societies that are dealing with um, groups that are trying to polarize them and that are trying to manipulate their feelings. And in that kind of a situation, there will be um, a backlash against the bringing in of prescribed groups. Um, and there will be a backlash by splinters of those prescribed groups, both of whom are benefiting from the status quo in some way. And so donors, international actors just need to plan for that and, and expect that it's going to happen and enable civil society to play an information war as well as a service and other um, set of roles that they play to, to reduce the space for that to happen. And I guess I'll end with that, that one thing that um, I think none of us have drawn out quite enough, so I just want to put a pin in it at the end, is that the people get a vote here. There's a society that is the swing vote, and that society is not monolithic. They have many, many people with many, many feelings and often extremely complex feelings that become more complex as security devolves and they have to make really horrible choices that um, no one wishes to make in order to protect themselves and their families and their businesses and, and what have you. And those people are the subject of all the other groups trying to affect them. Some of that uh, attempt is very crude. Governments tend to be the most crude, I would say, in using violence and uh, organized force of one sort or another as the main way that they're trying to affect how people feel about the situation. Prescribed groups, terrorists, organized criminals, and so on, are often much more sophisticated about manipulating public opinion and how they see actions of the government, how they see actions of um, the other groups, so that they uh, have more of a sense of security or at least understanding of what they're getting into with some of the prescribed groups. And the international actors tend to be pretty oblivious to the role of propaganda, of information warfare, and so on, and how the people are swinging. And so we must be much more thoughtful about what, what it means to come down just on the side of the government and strengthen the state, and what it means to um, help a public make choices that will ultimately be better for them, but that might be really difficult in the short run. And in order to do that, one needs to shape the security environment so they can make those choices and not just make Faustian bargains. And so I think paying a lot more attention to the kinds of uh, daily decisions they have to make and how we make it easier for them is crucial for international actors. Thank you, Rachel. So much of what you mentioned resonates with every single problem that we're seeing in the, in the Sahel now, in the Sahel region of West Africa. But I wish to thank you all. Um, I want to thank Rachel, Larry and Andre. Um, this is all the time we have for today. And thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. Until next time, from me, Delina Gojo. And from me, Jessica Summers. Goodbye. Goodbye. Warpod from Safer World. You can listen to all previous episodes and catch the latest releases every month, wherever you get your podcasts by searching for and following Warpod. And to find out more about our work at Safer World, please visit saferworld.org.uk.